May is the biggest auction season of the year. It opens with a huge set of sales at Christie's. In this podcast, we'll speak with Christie's chairman, Mark Porter, about the brother and sister collectors, Tomas and Doris Amon. Johanna Flom, head of the contemporary department, tells us about Warhol's Marilyn, the rare large flowers painting, and a work by Tomas's close friend, Francesco Clemente, that everybody should keep an eye on. The head of Christie's Impressionist and Modern Department, Max Carter, talks about an early Cubist Picasso bronze being deaccessioned by the Metropolitan Museum. After that, he tells us about the extraordinary, eclectic collection of Anne Bass. Vanessa Fusco tells us about a $45 million Van Gogh landscape and two more Monets coming to market. Emily Kaplan details the Jackson Pollock drip painting Christie's has on offer. Then she tells us about the many women artists whose work is included in the evening sale, especially a major work by Howardina Pindell, who has seen million-dollar sales on the private market, but little in the way of large prices in public auctions. Finally, Anna Maria Sellis walks us through an important Basquiat triptych, the return of a major Richter abstract that could reset that market, and a work by sought-after artist Maria Berrio. Christie's sales begin on May 9th at 7 p.m. in New York. Sales continue on May 10th, 12th, 13th, and 14th. We will be following them. We hope you will be too. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Over the last few years, these marquee auctions have come to be dominated by the sales of huge collections. David Rockefeller, Barney Ebsworth, Linda and Harry Macklow are the most recognizable names. There have been many more as a generation of collectors passes. Doris and Tomas Amon were siblings. They were also business partners. As Mark Porter explains, their personal collection spans distinct periods in the art market. They are almost from two different generations and two moments in the, in the art world. Um, and certainly in a moment before the globalization of the art world took place. But imagine a time when in all of the great art cities of the world there was one dealer who had connections with or made connections in the case of Thomas with the good and the great of that of that city and also had good connections with the art world capitals like New York and Thomas was the person from Zurich who had such close connections with Warhol in his circle. I actually think the best way to learn about Thomas, although he's not directly depicted in it, is to watch the Warhol Diaries because it describes the art world and New York, the global art business, and the descent of AIDS in the art world at that time. And so I think that that perfectly 
must perfectly sum up what, what his life was like. And he was an outlier in, in many ways in that he was so courageous in talking about his, his struggle with HIV and then raising money for HIV. I didn't know Doris very well. Um, by the time I got to know Doris, my perception of her was that she was among the grandest and um, most well-entrenched and I had thought um, hereditary partner, hereditary position in the, in the grand Swiss or European art dealing hierarchy. I had no idea that she had founded the gallery with her brother and it was only after his death that she moved from a role of running the business more on a day-to-day -day basis to being the face of the business and ultimately becoming the agent of some of the most important collectors in the world. She was very private and discreet. The house, which is a Bauhaus masterpiece on the shores of Lake Zurich, was perfect in that it had great works of art and furniture and not an element of ostentatiousness or lack of comfort. It was perfection. And that's something that we see so infrequently in great collectors' houses, in that everything fit and worked together from the most valuable object to the least valuable object. The final lot of the Amman sale will be Andy Warhol's Shot Sage Blue Marilyn, one of five different colored versions of the work that Warhol made in 1964. The other four Marilyns are owned by some of the most significant collectors of contemporary art in the world today. The head of Christie's contemporary department, Johanna Flom, explains why the painting, which at $200 million has the highest presale estimate of any work ever auctioned, is so significant. It's Warhol, but it's more than Warhol. And I think, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is one of the most iconic pictures in art history, full stop. You've got the Mona Lisa, you've got the Birth of Venus, you've got, you know, Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon, and you've got Marilyn. And, and that's, that's bigger than the Warhol market. One of the interesting things we've kind of looked at is what has happened to the market when one of these Maryland pictures has come up in 30 years or so. In the early 90s, the red Maryland sold. That was $4 million. We get to 1998, it was a $17 million price against an estimate of four to $6 million at the time. So truly a lot of bidding and a lot of demand that really did launch the, the modern contemporary market. And since then, we saw another one of these Marylands in 2006 sell privately for about $100 million, which was another benchmark for the 20th century art market. Again, not just Warhol. And then again, a few years ago, the Orange Maryland retrades north of $200 million. With that price history, a $200 million estimate doesn't seem like such a stretch. Indeed, Flam points out that the reaction from collectors has been an almost deja vu-like sense of familiarity. It's an image that, very interestingly, as we had the painting here before it went on its global tour, a lot of people who stood in front of the painting 
felt this immediate familiarity and at the same time a completely new moment of actually standing in front of it. And and there is something about the familiarity and a number of people commented sort of offhand not knowing about others who said this is the color combination I think of when I think of Marilyn. There's this image that is so emblazoned in your mind that you it feels extremely familiar. And so I think that is an image that speaks globally. You mentioned sort of the the other collectors that that own um, the other four works in this series, and they are among the best 20th century collections. And I think this is a key picture for anyone globally who is building those top collections. Among the legendary collectors who have owned these Marilyns, Cy Newhouse has the distinction of having owned two of them. The orange one, for which he set the record in 1998, and, as it turns out, this one as well. Thomas actually bought the painting from Cy Newhouse, uh, and and that was in the early 80s. So, interestingly, and, and this was something we kind of uncovered in all the research, uh, Cy had sold this one in the early 80s, um, presumably maybe regretted not having it on his wall, and then went ahead and purchased the orange one in the late 90s. While we're talking about Cy Newhouse, it's worth mentioning that in the period after Newhouse reset the Warhol market in 1998, the most significant sales at the new price levels were for the large flowers that Warhol also made in 1964. The flowers are very familiar because Warhol made many in several different sizes, but only a few works were made in the very large formats. The Amans had one, and it is on offer with an estimate of $15 million. The flowers are interesting, and you're, you're touching on it, which is in each of the sizes, there is a different number and a different rarity to these paintings. The, the smaller paintings, there are more of them, and they do come up quite frequently as, as we see in, in multiple season sales. But the, the flowers here, the, the 82-inch flowers, are very rare. Tomas Amon was very active in the New York art world of the 1980s, so it isn't surprising that he had a close friendship with Francesco Clemente. Clemente remains an artist with continuing museum support, but little public market presence. The artist's large work, The 14 Stations Number no. 9 from 1981, is in the Amon sale with an $80,000 estimate. I asked Flam to explain. Certainly the auction market for Clemente and the private market for Clemente have been quite far apart for a long time. But when you look at the results, there hasn't been great Clemente that has come up in, you know, the last decade plus. So um, it, it, bringing great work to market will, will be what, what brings, the, you know, brings the buyers out and, right. and, and brings that new benchmark out. Another giant work in the collection is Cy Twombly's Venere Sopra Gaeta from 1988, which has a $10 million estimate. It's a painting you need to see in person. And I think this painting is from the, the late 80s. Twombly only painted, I think, two paintings in that year. The energy of Twombly when you see it in person, the layering, the dripping, the, the scrawling, it's all there. This was a painting that Thomas actually begged um, Twombly for for quite a long time and really was was extremely passionate about owning. So um, I think he, he really didn't give up. 
Max Carter is going to talk about Ambass's collection. But before we get into that, I wanted to start with the famous Picasso bronze bust of a woman's head that the Metropolitan Museum is selling to fund new acquisitions. This was this is from Florian Schoenborn, um, who gifted it to the Met in 1995 when she died, um, and who'd, who'd owned it since the late 40s with her husband Samuel Marx. So a, lot, a really amazing provenance. I think between the importance of the motif, it's the great Cubist sculpture and Cubist portrait, the the Provenance and history, it's a great early cast, and, and of course the Met, the Met helps. And, and the, the quality of this cast, and the surface articulation, the beauty, and the variety, and the depth, it's the best sculpture that I've handled in 15 years at Christie's. It's, it just it checks all of the boxes that you could possibly want. The bust may be one of nearly two dozen, but one of the things that makes an addition bronze work unique is the patina that develops over time, unless the artist is careful to control that aspect of the work. I think something like 27 out of over 700 of his sculptures were done before 1912, so this is a relatively new medium from him. And, and Villard, his dealer at the time, was using small commercial foundries who also were not, did not have a very, um, had, had, you know, had, had a variable viewpoint on what, on what patinas meant. So the, the patinas between each of the early casts is, is very different. You have some that are very flat and matte and slightly lifeless, and this cast, which has great depth and variety, and again, in surface articulation. However you judge the patina, you don't really have much of a choice when it comes to this work. The Met is selling this work only because it received another example from a prominent donor. So this sale is somewhat unexpected, and the estimate is based on what's been sold publicly, not the record price for a Picasso sculpture in the private market, which is quite a bit higher. It's such a generational opportunity that I, that it could, it's people that we know who are, who are great sculpture buyers and people who, are, who aspire, who have, you know, have come into the market since the last one was up 20 years ago and aspire to that. So any, anything and everything in between. I, the estimate is uh, in the region of $30 million, which is, uh, I think we feel a let the market decide estimate. The, the record for any sculpture at auction is, is, is around 30. Not, nothing not to like about it. It's been, it's been over 20 years since the last one was up. It might be another 20 years before the next one. Moving on to Ambass's collection, there were four different versions of Edgar Degas' bronze 14-year-old dancer, sold since 1999. The last of those was auctioned in 2015, when it made $24 million. Christie's has estimated Bass's version at $20 million. <laughs> yeah, it is an embarrassment of riches this season. We have what is arguably the greatest pre-war 20th century sculpture and, and arguably the best sculpture of the latter half of the, of the 19th century, there were 29 casts of the Degas. Over half of them are in museums, and, and the casts were all posthumous. So the only lifetime um, version of the work is the wax, um, which was exhibited in, in Degas' lifetime. But the bronzes were cast by his estate from 1922 all the way through to the 1950s. So the earlier the cast, the, the, there tends to be a, a slight premium for that. This is a cast which was commissioned in August 1927, which is a very early cast. Um, and it has an amazing history. It was commissioned by um, a man called Charles Liebman, who, who commissioned it in 1927. It was sold by his family in 1955. Um, it was bought in 1955 at Park Burnett by Charles Payson, who ultimately owned the Mets, uh, among other things. And in an amazing Only in New York story, he had it in his apartment on Fifth Avenue for all of those years. Mrs. Bass bought it in 1985 through Wildenstein, but coming from him, and uh, she bought his apartment as well. So the bronze is in the same apartment for the last 70 years on Fifth Avenue and, and, and has left it for the first time in, in a good long while now. Bass bought a Degas and an apartment from Charles Payson, but that wasn't her only bulk buying. She bought two Rothkos from Mary Lasker. Carter explains. 
the the first of the two, the more exp the more expensive by the estimate of the two is called Shades of Red, which is from 1961. The the second of the two is is the first painting he painted in 1962. She actually bought the second one first at auction here at Christie's in 1982, and the, and it came was consigned by Mary Lasker, and then she ended up going back and buying directly from Mary Lasker the Shades of Red to sort of complement the pair. And there's a great David Anthem has written a great essay for the catalog where he suggests that even though they were painted a year apart, that Rothko was thinking about Shades of Red when he was when he was doing um, number one. So they're, they're, it's, it's amazing that they're together. Obviously, Mary Lasker on them together. She's had them together for 40 years. It would be amazing if they stayed together. Bass's apartment plays another role in the collection. She hung her Rothkos on two walls, framing the entrance to her dining room, which held an additional three Monet paintings. One, above the mantelpiece, but viewable between the Rothkos. Christie's has recreated the vista in its galleries. The effect is transformative. The Rothkos have now been together through two different owners, but the addition of the Monet suggests another configuration. Of course, I mean, ideally all three would stay together because the, the vista is so, is so amazing and unforgettable. I mean, not just for the people who, who were lucky enough to, to go to the apartment, but we're gonna try and recreate that in, the, in, the, in, in our exhibition because it was so, it was so special and it was it's not just the Roth having this amazing pair of Rothkos together, but the, the, the sort of through line between between the, the great flowering of late impressionism and that, that's an early 20th century Monet through to the New York school and how they speak together to each other, how they pick up on the on the, the sun in the parliament, which is which sort of backlights the painting. This this picture just has a has a numinous kind of mysterious quality about it. This abstract aura that, that you just sort of have to, to know when you see it. The two other Monets in the dining room are of the type that collectors prize most these days. Though, as Carter points out, these works were sought after by collectors a hundred years ago too. Well, we actually there, there are three Monets, and each each there's a Nymphias as well. Each of them, if we had in any other season, would be the pride of the of, of the galleries. But of course, she hung three in her dining room, and and, and we're, we're we're you know we're, we can't believe we, we have three in the same sale. But each each is very different. What what sort of brings them together? They're they're three great serial paintings, and that's nowadays that those that's what people prize the most commercially. Um, but what brings them together is each you know the Poplars is the first to be painted. That's 1891. Um, the, the Parliament's completed by 1903 and the Nymphias is 1907, but each within five years of being painted entered a great sort of Gilded Age American collection within five years. Not that Bass only bought works that were blindingly obvious by artists like Degas, Rothko, and Monet. She took her share of risks on artists like Baltus, she had three works, and Hammershoy. The way we've, we've you know, the way it, it read in the home and the way the dialogues between the works work out, we, we looked at, we, and the way our, our, our Exhibition will will be will be read, and the way our catalog will be read, the the collection has four distinct chapters. There's the Degas, there's the Rothkos, there's, there's the Monets, and then there's the Baltus and the Hammershoy, which hung opposite each other in, in her entryway. And the the Baltus at, at the window is one of the you know if you like this artist is one of the top five Baltuses to come to auction, arguably ever. Um, the sister painting is at the Met. This is a, this is a slightly more literal painting there. This is more mis mysterious. Um, uh, Image and also has kind of a wonderful, wonderful history. She bought it around, you know, a similar time to some of these other works in, 19, in around 1985. Um, but has had, just has an amazing, again, amazing affinity with this smaller, the Hammershoy. They're linked by the, the the great Austrian poet Rilke, who knew is the one person who seemed to know both of these artists. Then they were bought, bought it, you know, not not were not bought in the same week. You know, they were yeah. bought five years apart from one another. And you know, Hammershoy is has has a great worldwide following, but. 
1989, when she bought this painting, it was very much off the beaten track. Last November, Christie's had a surprise hit with the works from the Cox Collection, which included several paintings by Vincent van Gogh. Success breeds success in the auction business. That means more van Gogh. Vanessa Fusco walks us through the landscape from 1889 that Christie's has on offer with a whisper number of $45 million. This was after Van Gogh had um, moved down to San Remy. Um, he checked himself into an asylum um, after having suffered from two mental breakdowns when he was living in Arles, um, one in December 1888 and, and then again in February of 1889. And he realized he really was not able to, to live by himself and he needed to seek um, some help. So he checked himself into the asylum in San Remy. Um, and this is where you really start to see an intensity to Van Gogh's brushwork and to Van Gogh's coloration. Um, he had been at the asylum for about seven months at the time that our work was painted. And he's starting to wander around the grounds. He's painting en plein air and painting the mountain ranges and the beautiful landscape that surrounded um, the area where he was staying. He, he really found peace while he was there. He was able to sort of commune with nature um, and spend a lot of time outdoors. This work um, has this very thickly applied, almost three-dimensional brushwork. Um, there's great intensity of colors, especially in the mountains and the sky. Um, and, you know, we know so much about Van Gogh's state of mind through the, the letters that he wrote um, back and forth with his brother, Teo. Um, and he describes this work in some of the letters to Teo, and he speaks very specifically about the lilac mountains. Um, the work is also interesting for its early provenance. Um, he gifted it to his friend and confidant, Joseph Rulan, who is um, the infamous postman who Van Gogh, you know, immortalized his image in many portraits. Um, they had met when Van Gogh was living in Arles, and Rulan was really a source of inspiration and, and a great source of support for Van Gogh. They wrote many letters back and forth, and Rulan encouraged him to keep painting and, and you know, to stay strong during this time in his life. Um, so he made two pictures for Rulan, um, this being one of them. It's wonderful to have a work from this, you know, high point of his career. Of course, in terms of the market, Van Gogh is so, so desired. You know, we had three pictures from the Cox collection in November. Um, and this one is painted just a month after the landscape from the Cox collection. That work was estimated to remind you in the region of $40 million. It made $71 million. There were 12 bidders on that work. I mean, that is it's sensational, you know, for an object of that value. Um, and they came from all over the world. Claude Monet is another artist with global appeal. We've discussed the three Monets in the Bass Collection, but Christie's was able to obtain two more that will also be featured in their sales. We're privileged to have two Monets coming from both actually private French collections, both having been in these various collections for many decades. So one is right from, you know, the origin story of Impressionism, painted winter of 1874-1875 in Argentoy, a beautiful snow scene. This work was included in the fourth Impressionist exhibition, um, so exhibited in 1879. It has this incredible incredible glittering effect inherent in the snow. There are blues and pinks and purples and, and so many different layers of colors. And you're really seeing Monet experimenting with 
the atmospheric effects of the various, you know, various weather conditions on the same scene. This is one of a series, you know, Monet always worked in series. Um, this is a, one of 18 pictures depicting snow in Argentoy at this period, and half of them are in museum collections. The one that we are selling, as I said, coming from a private French collection where it's been for over 70 years. So very fresh to the market, as we like to say. The other picture is from 1890, and this is also, again, coming from a private collection. It has, it, it really is the beginning of Monet's The Great series. So 1890, um, in that decade, Monet would paint his popular series, one of which, you know, we're selling with the Bath collection, um, the Rouen Cathedral, the Great Haystacks. Um, and this predates that. It's really the beginning of the series pictures. Um, so this picture has actually been in, in the collection for about 100 years. It was purchased in 1914 or thereabouts and has remained in the same family. In the 20th century evening sale, Christie's has a Jackson Pollock drip painting called Number 31 from 1949. Emily Kaplan explains. It's paper mounted to masonite from 1949. Um, the estimate on request in excess of $45 million. And it's a very exciting highlight of the sale because it's extremely rare to be able to offer really a highest quality drip painting. This is fresh to the market been in the same collection for almost two decades, widely exhibited, particularly very early on, was included in a show the same year it was created, a Betty Parsons, new paintings. Um, it was included in the his MoMA retrospective in 1967 and also in the Tate MoMA retrospective in 1998. So it's really a well-known work and from his best, best period um, where he was really at the height of his powers and um, you know, the, the most well-known drip paintings are really from 1948-1949. Yeah, he started sort of doing the more black enamel paintings right directly after, which aesthetically is quite a departure, although there's a lot of overlap, of course, in the technique. But those are also largely on canvas, whereas a lot of the works from 1948-49 are pa actually paper-mounted on masonite or on canvas, um, including a lot of the works that are in museums. So there are works from 1949 that are in MoMA and the Guggenheim and many other institutions. I asked Kaplan if the very strong $61 million price for the Maclow's black painting last season played any role in this work coming to market. I think it is in part. I think that was a major result, um, particularly for a series that isn't always regarded as the most desirable. So I think it's very noted, notable and um, certainly something that, you know, we are aware of in the pricing of this object. However, this is not an unprecedented price for a work of this medium or period. Um, in 2013, which was almost a decade ago, we sold a uh, work from 1948, but same medium, you know, paper mounted to masonite for $58 million. Another rare market appearance is Andy Warhol's large skull. Only four seem to remain in private hands, and the seller is formerly a very significant figure in the Warhol market. Christie's is offering it with a $25 million estimate. A skull of this size has never come to auction before. Um, the whereabouts of all 11 of them in this size are well known. Um, seven of them are in museums. So they are not 
frequent market objects. Um, they were shown in the, the Whitney retrospective a few years ago. So they're sort of known in that way. They were in a Calvin Klein campaign. So they're becoming a little famous. I saw some snippets of some in the Andy Warhol diaries on Netflix. Um, but it's very exciting to be able to offer one. And the, this work is just, just striking in person. The scale, the, even kind of the texture on it, which is not always something you say about a Warhol is very, very striking and beautiful. Christie's has made diversity and inclusion an important goal for the company. Kaplan explains how that has gone beyond an internal focus to apply as well to the artists they bring to auction. We have actually a lot of female artists represented in the sale, which I'm particularly excited about, um, including Joan Mitchell, of course. We have an incredible Georgia O'Keeffe sunflower painting being um, deaccessioned from the MFA Boston. We have um, a Ruth Asawa. We have uh, Howardina Pindell. It's her first time ever in an evening sale. Um, she is uh, an artist who is becoming, I think, much more well-known and um, sort of sought after, but has been included in a lot of major museum shows. Um, she had a major show at the MCA Chicago, was included in the Soul of a Nation exhibition. So we have a major work from the late 70s. This is coming from, it's a named collection. Their names are Norma and William Roth. Um, they are Florida collectors. They've owned this for decades. Um, they are clearly aware of the market. It was actually in a recent exhibition, so I think um, that probably spurred them to take advantage of the market. This is one where we had to kind of do our research ahead of pitching for this object because the auction market does not tell the full story. There's one $100,000 price, and that was years ago at this point, way before she was included in a lot of these major museum shows. You know, we, we know of a, a number of works that have sold privately in the one million plus range for works of this year, um, size, general range, and um, is in very high demand from collectors who, you know, it, it's very hard to have access or, or find these works because there are not many out there. And Certainly because the auction market has been so, so small and limited, they're not coming out of the woodwork. You know, it'll be interesting to see after this work, hopefully it does well, and then we maybe see a little bit more of a spike. The surprise of the pandemic has been the unleashing of demand for art at every level. We've documented on live art the rise in the Monet market, which is one reason you see so many of those works on offer this season. We've also published a report on the Warhol market and the potential for the Maryland to reignite sales of that artist. Christie's, like others in the contemporary art market, have noticed the renewed appetite for Gerhard Richter abstract paintings that started last year, especially the larger works, which had seen something of a market hiatus. Anna Maria Sellis tells us about the Richter abstract that sold for $34 million in 2012 that Christie's has brought back to market hoping it will push those sales to the next level. I think this is probably one of the best um, abstracts out there. This picture was formerly owned by Eric Clapton in 2012. Sotheby's sold this, and it became the record at the time. Um, it sold for just a little north of $34 million, um, which was a massive price um, then. It's still a huge price for, for an abstract, but this picture is... You know, there, there's also something we say, which is like once a record, it always becomes a record. You know, these like great pictures that, you know, get really aggressive and competitive bidding. Like 
odds are is that they will come up again and they will set another record. I mean, we've seen some abstracts come to market in the last few years. I think this is really as good as it gets. So um, there certainly seems to be a lot of appetite on the market generally for great objects. So I expect competition here. It's, you know, it's coming with a third party guarantee already. So, you know, it's already a vote of confidence. Christie's also has a Basquiat triptych in this sale with an unpublished estimate understood to be around $30 million. I think here you really see Basquiat sort of pulling every brilliant art historical reference that he has up his sleeve and and as well very much, um, I think, painting the story of, of himself as an artist and as a graffiti artist. And so in a way, it's also a reference to his environment, to his, you know, environment of graffiti and then moving into more like um you know the artist that was showing in the great galleries and with sort of high art quote unquote but it really is i think basket at his best um it's carefully constructed there's about 10 different pieces of wood that come together and very much has the shape of a of a renaissance altarpiece and and so when you approach this you really have this almost you, you take a pause in in the in the way that you know i guess you are wired to think as somebody that has looked at art for many years, you know, to to approach an altarpiece, right? Then and, and you sort of look at the central panel and at the at the two panels that flank it, and you see a little bit of everything. You see, of course, the great, really rendered face of possibly the artist or himself, Basquiat, but also the artist, right? And then in the center panel, you have the crown with like you know beautiful gesture and splatter around it. And on the left panel, you very much have that reference to graffiti art with that S that, that was sort of very popular among graffiti artists. So it kind of encompasses everything. It has you know, different iconography and references with letters that you see in other, um, in other Basquiat works like ankle. There's the references to, to death you, you see in the bottom across with the word morte, a fantastic skyscraper that comes above it. So it really is. It's so fabulously loaded, this painting. Um, I, I absolutely love it. I think it's a tough picture, but I think this is, you know, everything I love personally about Basquiat. I asked Celis what she meant by a tough picture. It's not pretty. There's no gold and there's no bright red. There's a messiness about it. But I think in a way where like a Rauschenberg combine has like a messiness and a and, you know, he, he's definitely, I think he's so hyper aware of all of this, right? I mean, there's no accident to the way this has been built. And finally, I asked Celis to tell me about the Maria Berrio work that she has in her sale. Seems like everybody has one, which I didn't realize it, there would be one in every sale. I mean, I, I think her work is, is gorgeous and beautiful. She's not young necessarily in it, but it seems like there's a giant spotlight on her right now and people are talking about her and like her work. I love that she's Colombian as a Venezuelan with a Colombian grandfather. Like I think it's just also adds like diversity to, to these sales and paintings are just so intricate. There's like beautiful kind of collage work that goes into it. And I, I think, you know, the first impression you get when you see the one we have, for example, it's like immediately you think of like Klimt or you think of a, a fauve artist rather than like an ultra contemporary artist, but there's something very dreamy about them. So there you go. 
I know it seems like a lot, but we've barely scratched the surface. This is a bumper season for art and for Christie's. We hope you'll join us as we cover the sales. They begin on the evening of May 9th for the Amon sale, continue on the evening of May 10th. Then there are sales day and night on the 12th, 13th, and the day of the 14th. Join us on the Live Art app to get the latest results. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.